Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, artists Fazel Sheikh and John Acomfra. The Portland Art Museum in Oregon is exhibiting Common Ground, photographs by Fazel Sheikh, 1989 to 2013, a 25-year survey of Sheikh's work. The exhibition focuses on Sheikh's portraiture, work that spotlights the individual humanity often forgotten or obscured by war and other ethnic, religious, or misogynistic violence. The show also includes some of Sheikh's landscapes, which often suggest the violence or migration that the land in his pictures sustained. It's on view in Portland through May 20th. The show is organized by Eric Paddock for the Denver Art Museum. Julia Dolan oversaw the Portland installation. Sheikh, who was born in New York to an American mother and Kenyan father, spent many childhood summers in Kenya. After earning a Fulbright scholarship after studying under Emmett Gowan at Princeton, Sheikh returned to Africa and soon found himself photographing people from Somalia, Ethiopia, Mozambique, and Rwanda who were displaced and were living in refugee camps. Over the ensuing decades, he continued to look at places where massive waves of migration, often caused by violence, impacted people and places. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award, and museums such as the MFA Houston, Map Free Foundation in Madrid, and the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City have presented solo exhibitions of his work. Sheikh has a fantastic website that includes both a broad presentation of his work and free digital versions of all his books. We'll have links to a bunch of that on manpodcast.com. Next up, John Acomfra. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art is presenting the U.S. debut of Acomfra's Vertigo Sea in Sublime Seas, John Acomfra, and J.M.W. Turner. The exhibition, which pairs a film installation a Compra made for the Venice Biennale in 2015 with Turner's painting The Deluge, will be on view at SF MoMA through September 16th. In two weeks, on March 29th, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University will exhibit a Compra's Precarity, which debuted at Prospect 4 in New Orleans. The Acomfra presentation at the Nasher will remain on view through August 26th. Later this spring, a Compra will return to the Man podcast to discuss that work. Acomfra has had many solo exhibitions and dedicated screenings around the world, including at the Tate Britain and at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. One note before we get started. Most weeks, the longer segment is the program's lead or first segment, but this week we're transposing the two segments, so you'll hear John Acomfra first and then Fazel Sheikh. That's because the audio quality of my conversation with Sheikh is a bit below our usual standards. Sheikh was in Switzerland, I'm in California and the trans-global communications networks caused some occasional blips in our conversation. I think the interview is plenty legible and that you'll still enjoy it, but it's a bit glitchy. So John Acomfra leads us off after the break. The Guggenheim Museum in New York presents Joseph Albers in Mexico, closing on April 4th. The exhibition features both rarely shown and iconic paintings by Joseph Albers, alongside photographs and photo collages of the artist's trips to archaeological sites in Mexico beginning in the 1930s. Through correspondence, ephemera, and works drawn from the collections of the Guggenheim and the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, Joseph Albers in Mexico presents an opportunity to experience the least known aspect of Albers's practice, photography, offering new perspective on this celebrated abstract artist. Plan your visit and see the schedule of guided exhibition tours in English and Spanish at Guggenheim.org. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Sam and Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. 
Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. Now on view at the Getty Center, an exhibition about one of the world's most iconoclastic exhibition makers. Harold Zeman, Museum of Obsessions, explores the Swiss museum curator's life and career. From his groundbreaking involvement with the avant-garde movements of the 1960s and 70s, to his global contemporary exhibitions of the 1990s and 2000s, to his personal reading of early 20th century modernism. Learn more about this Getty Research Institute show and all March events at the center at getty.edu 360. And we're back. John Acomfra, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. Vertigo C, you made the piece for the Venice Biennale, and of course Venice has a, a famous centuries-long relationship to the sea. Is your Was your decision to make a work that revolves around the world's oceans substantially or even mostly about that, or was there a whole lot more to it than that? A combination of, of, of reasons. Obviously, yes, the fact that the Biennale or biannual was in Venice was a consideration. But, you know, it also happened to be around about the time when the refugee crisis in Europe was pretty much at its height. I think the year before that, before the biannual, there had been something like 5,000 deaths at sea of, of people of people trying to get to Spain and Italy. Uh, Lampedusa was one of the places where people were trying to get to at the time. So that, yes, there were reasons why Venice had an, uh, a sort of influence, but there were reasons why the general political and cultural, I suppose, for want of a better word, backdrop mm. of what was happening in Europe influenced my decision too. Nothing comes across the across the 45 minutes of the film installation as clearly as the idea that the oceans are dangerous, that they are sites of a, many different kinds of violence. Mm -hmm. Was it the refugee crisis that brought you to the idea of of pointing out how violent oceans are, or was that only kind of the the gateway? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> there's always uh, an, an enigmatic thing about quite how you arrive at something like Vertigo Sea. I've, I've said over and over again to, to people who've asked me this question that listening to this young Nigerian whose voice opens Vertigo Sea had a major impact on, on me. Partly because I suddenly realized that that I was in the throes of listening to someone discuss becoming. It's very rare that you get that. It's very rare that you listen to someone or or watch something where you think, wow, I'm I'm watching literally a new species or a new being come alive. And I I, I felt that very strongly. So once I once I got him, once I got the refugees, the question then was what other stories and what other narratives and chapters involving making and unmaking at sea could could this young man talk to? And I, I realized without necessarily even 
you know, thinking about it as a project that I, I knew all of these different chapters. You know, I had uh, been a member of something called Chile Solidarity in the, when I was a teenager in the 70s and, and I'd heard about all these political prisoners in Chile and Argentina who were being taken out by helicopters to sea and dumped by military hunters in, in both countries. I'd realised that I knew from my French history lessons <laughs> that, that the colonial, anti-colonial war in, in Algeria uh, involved exactly the same process of, you know, French paratroopers taking out uh, Algerian freedom fighters and dumping them at sea. You know, I remember as a as a child watching, I mean, riveted to to news programs as we watched the what was then the refugee crisis par excellence, and it was Vietnamese refugees trying to flee Vietnam who were, you know, dying then in their thousands at sea, you know, so you, you suddenly realize that actually you know quite a bit. And the question then is, how can you get all of these disparate chapters and elements and narratives to somehow converse with each other, to just have a conversation? And that was the ambition. I, I didn't, I mean, I'm not sure that if, well, if I said to you that I set off with this plan and, and that that plan is the finished vertigo sea and be lying hmm. my my aims were just much more modest than that it was really just to initiate a conversation between these disparate narratives of of lives and deaths at sea and somehow as i as i thought about it, it they all seem in some ways connected to to to, to their main sort of drama of deaths at sea, which is the sort of two-century, three-century uh, traffic in, in humpback and sperm whale killings. And the question was, how can you get these things to talk really to each other? So that, that was the aim, if that makes sense. This is the first time the work has been shown in the U.S., so I should maybe just try to give listeners an idea of uh, how many things die, are killed, or suffer violence in the ocean in Vertigo Sea, and the list includes uh, polar bears, whales, uh, birds diving in to, to spear fish. Um, you mentioned Vietnamese. Um, the African slave trade is represented in the, in the film in a number of ways. I, I, I could keep going. It, it, it's a 45-minute piece. I, I just want people to... I, I just hope listeners understand we're not just talking about people here. There's a, a, a very broad emphasis on the danger part of what sublimity is. Mm-hmm. Um, in 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 the piece, we're going to come back to Vertigo C in a moment. But mm-hmm. one of the things that you get to do here um, at SF MoMA is to have Vertigo C, which plays across three screens in the same space as Turner's 1805-ish painting, uh, The Deluge. Did The Deluge painting from the Tate, which um, I'm sure was uh, no uh, small drama to get, did The Deluge um, or Turner's like it inform Vertigo C, or was there another relationship you wanted to make between the painting and your work once you finished making your work? I mean, Turner is a is a central figure um, and has been really in my in my life for four decades. You know, when I was a uh, very very young, twelve thirteen, we lived 
quite close to the Tate Gallery, the Tate, what is now Tate Britain in London. Uh, and Tate Britain is, is really the, the museum that houses the Turners when he bequeathed them to the nation, mm-hmm. uh, the British nation. And so I would go there, walk down to the Tate Saturdays to, to, to just gawk really at them. I, I've always loved Turner and something about his work always suggested to me a way of working, I suppose, you know, his understanding of light, of shadow, and critically, um, the changing shape of what one would call nature itself seemed seemed important to understand and digest for me as a as a as a person and as a later on as an artist. So he's always been he's always been central. But what's even more critical is that there are two pieces of Turner's that I've been particularly one is the deluge which we're, we've got here and the other is the uh, the zog which is his painting on the deaths of africans at sea who were thrown overboard both of them are obviously subjects which are close to my heart in vertigo sea and so there are direct references for me but i mean they have been in the background of, of of what I've been doing in the last decade for a very long, I mean, you know, in the last decade, essentially. No, he's a, he's a, he's a seminal figure. You know, the fact is, you know, generally people don't think that there might be a relationship between the work of a, a radical black artist and, a, and an 18th century, 19th century uh, neoclassical painter. But I just urge people to just have a look themselves at, Turner's work and then just come and have a look at come and have a look at Vertigo Sea and I think the elective affinities are very very clear and I I say that I don't make any apologies for that at all I think he's an an extraordinary painter uh, was an extraordinary painter and I've learned a huge amount from his work I can hardly think of anything I love more than a painting being uh, in a a film installation gallery I I, I love that that we can recognize, you know, four decades, five decades into into from the beginning of video art, we can, I think, recognize that it, it's all part of the same soup. One kind of um, weird niggling question about uh, a, a decision you made: why why is Vertigo C on three screens? Why not two? Why not four? Why why that way? Technically, I had worked on a on a trip to just before there were certain questions raised by by this trinity mm-hmm. of a of a format that i wanted to explore further i didn't i mean i thought we i thought we we sort of got control of it in the end but it's a bit of a raging beast a, a triptych and uh, having just figured out how it should work i i wanted to just return to it again to see how much more we can get out of it. I mean, essentially, the reasons why I it seemed the right form for for Vertigo C was that the clearly there were going to be disparate elements to to this, and I was setting out to make something which was also going to be quite discursive, layered, and not necessarily 
a whole a whole if you like it was going to be made up of a series of fragments as it were but i also needed people to understand that these fragments are all in the process of attempting to have a conversation with each other mm-hmm. and it seemed to me that if we could if we could mirror that in the form that it that it was taking that it would make a bit more sense in other words if people can see the conversation itself being played out across multiple screens it would somehow underscore the importance of the key theme of vertigo c which is that i'm essentially trying to get a whole series of historical moments which have no necessary correspondence between them at all to have a dialogue with each other that that seemed really important to me i mean it just seemed important almost as carlo ginsberg the historian used to say almost a, a part of our obligation to the dead that if you exhume narratives about the passing of life one of the ethical responsibilities you face it seems to me either as a writer or an artist or whatever is to is to say to that is to try and rescue that dead narrative character peoples from from the key fact of death which is singularity you die alone and on the whole death wants you to be on your own in your grave at sea or in the ground and it seems to me that if you if you exhume in that way you what's incumbent on you as an artist is to get those that you have exhumed to have a relationship with each other it's important for me to say to a group of vietnamese both people who died in the south china seas look there is an argentinian who met the same fate as you talk to each other or at least let's see you and make let's see you attempt to talk to each other in in something and let's see what sort of language what kind of dialogue might emerge if you were to initiate that conversation that seems to me to be important and i that's really one of the main reasons why i wanted to to have this multi screen format as the key narrative device for for vertigo c and it very much works that way so the film which is kind of an empathy engine hmm. presents say the danger of climate change and humans to polar bears and we 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 see a polar bear being uh, quite graphically shot dying and then ultimately killed and and as we you know minutes after or even maybe on one screen over as we're seeing that we're seeing references to the 18th and early 19th century transatlantic slave trade where it's both the ocean and white humans who are the danger to Africans. And mm. it, it, the, 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 the installation kind of overlaps these, these, these scenes. I read an interview you did with Art Radar in which you talked about how, while Vertigo C debuted in Venice and has now been seen in the UK, that you're learning the reactions to it depend a lot on the national histories of where a work is shown. Um, you said that Denmark, which, like the United States, has a, or at least the Eastern United States, has a whaling history, kind of really locked in on on that part of the work. How do you feel about that? Is that okay? I mean, you know, so it's not 
just <laughs> yeah, losing right. control of a thing you make when it goes out into the world and goes international, it's maybe a little bit different because it's losing control of what it means to people? No, I understand that and I understand why that might feel like that. But I honestly don't mind. I really, and it's important to, to say that because that goes to the very heart of the ambitions behind the piece. I mean, you know, when you pull together disparate elements into this relation, you know, emotional affinity or proximity, that is with the hope that they might stand together. But, but you're also aware that some may be more appealing depending on the location in which the, the work is being played out. Some may be more appealing than others. You know, there will be some that, that the people have a familiarity with that they might want to, to explore more than, than others. And that, that's okay. I, I mean, I think all we can do is to offer the charismatic example of, of this show of strength between these disparate elements, you know, that they all turn up at your doorstep and say, hello, we're here, we want to have a, you know, we want to have a conversation, you know. I think it's important that they all turn up, but I don't think you necessarily have to listen to all of them at the mm. same time or even take seriously all of them. That is, in fact, part and parcel of the democratic impulse of engaging with a work like this. You have every right to, I, I don't mind. I mean, I, I, the only thing I would say if you make something like a vertigo seed, i.e. a triptych, disparate elements, multiple narratives, you are you're trying to find connections between things. And clearly one of them is the sort of masculinities unbound, you know. So you're saying, look, when you see a, a bear being shot in the 1890s, you know, don't forget that he, you know, this you know, animal has been shot in a space that, that this figure who's shooting it has arrived at via boat. And that boat may well have been used, you know, 50 years before to to get another figure to another place where they might have killed a sperm. You know, it's just trying to make suggestions that people could explore mm. about connections. But there is a core, and the core is is a certain kind of masculinity. Which, which is formed at sea, essentially. And that masculinity is one that believed <laughs> that it could kill other creatures with immunity because we needed things from those creatures and found no real shame in, in then practicing the same brutalities on other human beings as it had done on the Cetacean universe, you know. So it's, it's really just trying to make connections for, for people, but in a, in a very democratic way, in a very open-ended way. Choose what you feel is important. If, if, if not, if you don't take all of them on, it's fine. You know, I don't mind. I have probably overemphasized the violence and killing in Vertigo Sea. There is no. also an overwhelming amount of of lush, colorful, rich beauty in the in the film installation. Is there something you want us to understand or find about landscape and its relationship to violence and how landscape can in a, in, in a way 
wipe clean the violence that takes place upon it? I learned something very early that I've I've always sort of tried to in a way work through in most of these works and it it's something you find very dramatically drawn out in let's say the work of Turner so you know in the way when you watch one of these Turner seascapes you are seeing you are in the presence of the sublime and that is not necessarily just about beautiful things it's about that fundamental clash between beauty and terror which creates these moments of the sublime at sea so i learned that very early i I remember being i was in rwanda with an old friend who covered the the genocide there and um, i was really struck by just how incredibly beautiful most of rwanda was and I, i i remember turning to him to say how is it possible for so so many really terrible things to happen in a place that looks looked and looks so beautiful and he said ah john <laughs> actually that's where that's where most terrible things happen mm. you know and it is true it's the backdrop to violence isn't necessarily always treblinka or auschwitz those are sort of exceptions in a way on the whole most violence happens in places that people would consider quote unquote beautiful and so it's it's really about trying to say something about the nature of of images and and of the forces that shape what we understand to be beautiful you know seas are incredibly powerful terrifying things you know but beautiful at the same time you know. Finally, as the credits, at least I think what we can call the credits of of the film installation roll at the end, there are three photographs on the middle screen, uh, three photographs, three different people. They are unnamed so far as as I could tell. Um, Who are are they? One of the things I was very keen to do was to find another way of naming people and things in Vertigo Sea. So the three that you're talking about are enslaved Africans, and they were the daguerreotypes that I got from the Peabody Museum in, in, in Boston. And, and it seemed important in a way for them to be present there. There's something really very sad, but also quite beautiful about these figures with so much sadness in their eyes, gazing unflinchingly either at the camera person and it's almost as if they are they are trying to say something to us in the in the present in our present it's almost as if they're saying you know i'm consenting to have this image of mine made because i know you in the future will see this and when you see this know that i joseph enslaved african on a plantation in north carolina was a human being and i greet you as another human being you know it's it 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 just felt like that every time i looked at those images i thought they're trying to speak literally speak to me in the present and i need to place them in in this piece in order for them to speak to others and you know what that i found out so many times in in the portraits that we used in vertigo sea whether they were 
people from um, Argentina in the 1970s who were just about to die because they were, their, their photographs were being taken as they were in these detention centers. And many of them were either shot, taken out to sea and dumped or something very terrible happened to them anyway and they had the same look they had the same look which said you know i am consenting to have my image made because i know you will see it and when you do know that i lived once and i would have loved to have lived longer you know it just seems to me one of those contracts that we make with images that we they come with a promise from a very long time ago usually from very far away different places Mm. And they try to communicate something to us. And I think part of my job is to alert, you know, my viewer to those implications. John Acompra, thanks so much. Thank you. MoMA's celebrated new photography series is back with Being New Photography 2018, now in member previews through Saturday. It opens on Sunday. This year's edition presents recent work by 17 artists from around the world and asks how photography can capture what it means to be human. Get more info and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Eve Loris Cohen, Meeting Ground, at its downtown location from April 19th through September 2nd. For Loris Cohen's first solo museum presentation on the West Coast, the artist takes as his starting point MCA SD La Jolla's current expansion, a construction endeavor involving the conversion of Sherwood Auditorium into a multi-purpose gallery. On the occasion of Sherwood's disappearance, the artist is engaged in an excavation of the history of the auditorium, and, in turn, of the museum itself. For more information, visit www.mcasd.org. Welcome back. And now my conversation with Fazal Sheikh. As I mentioned at the top of the program, the Portland Art Museum in Oregon is exhibiting Common Ground, photographs by Fazal Sheikh 1989-2013. to it's a 25-year survey of Sheikh's work. Fazal Sheikh, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Tyler. Your first series of portraits in refugee camps were made on the Kenya-Sudan border a quarter century ago now, in 1992. At the time, you were just five years out of Princeton, where you had studied under Emmett Cowan. And you were, and this is amazing to me, just 27 years old. I want to start in those early years. First, I understand that at Princeton you had made a lot of self-portraits, and I've never seen one. I'm not sure if you've ever exhibited them. <laughs> so what were they like, and did they inform the work that was to come after them? In some regard, they were, they were essential for me because I think that college is a time introspective, trying to find out your sort of sense of self in the world, sense of sexuality, sense of openness, sense of calm. The self-portrait, in a way, is a, a means by which to understand myself a little bit better. In retrospect, very 
essential actually to my process because in a way photography about answering questions and so I knew that it was the most important aspect of self-reflection and in college at some point it 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 reached the moment when it when I felt calm with myself when I uh, used the process of making to to create that calm and then somehow I I learned to to in a way after that time after those moments and Africa for me was the was the perfect mode for that sort of a return to what is partially uh, my home, given the fact that my father was born and raised, spent all my life between the New York City where I was born and, and the Kenya where I also spent part of every year. So just to fill in a bit of biography, your your father is Kenyan, you visited Nairobi a good bit as a young person, and and as you noted, you you have spent a lot of time in Africa. But before we get you out of Princeton, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question about Emmett Gowan, under whom you studied. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Emmett has long made portraits, especially of his wife, Edith. Did your interest in portraiture come from him? Did it, did it, or was that why you, you went to Princeton? What was, what was his influence on, on, on you as an undergrad? Actually, when I, when I was first at Princeton, I was, I was studying in the art department, but it was studying with the, the Hawaiian Japanese uh, Toshiko Takeizu. And about two years into my time there, to take classes in, in other media. And my first class in photography was, was with Emmett. Very strong rapport. He was an extraordinary teacher over the course of he's just recently retired. But I think his motive of teaching was somehow really profoundly in sync with my own sensibility. A kind of a generosity, which I haven't often experienced in teaching. Insistence, I think, on his part not to speak down to students, but rather in some way to suggest that, okay, he'd been doing this for many more years than us, but that we were all involved in the same kind of process. And though I wouldn't say particularly that, that I was drawn to portraiture because of Emmett and his work, I think, because actually the other thing that I think was really extraordinary he never imposed his sense of aesthetics on his students. He didn't want to create students who, you know, were of his way of working. He wanted to explore the world visually and in conversation with us. Of course, that meant a charismatic person that many students wanted to, to emulate him. And I think in a way, that's the way one. And I, I presume that I did my fair share of that. But understood best from him was this idea that photography was a tool to to place in the world and thereby with sort of the start of this idea of working in self-portraiture it was actually that there is a little bit of a moment at Princeton when I sort of realized that maybe the true mode in portraiture might be in turning my gaze outward and that was between my, I think it was junior and senior year, in, in a grant from the from the university to go back to Kenya, and I worked in and also along the coast, where my part of my family uh, living in Lamu on the coast, the Swahili community, and I, in photographing it came so naturally to me that I sort of didn't realize it had any value, and I brought that work back to Princeton, and I 
you know, I labored over it during the course of the next year. And, and uh, at the same time, I was still working with sculpture and, and self-portraiture and so forth. But perhaps because it came easily to me, I didn't realize that maybe it had value. I'm in there when suddenly Emmett suggested, you know, that actually this was the path for my work. And it's something I've, I've struggled with actually in all of the years, that if something comes easily for you, that it is perhaps not of value. You know, I was convinced that the things that I harder upon intellectual or even uh, visual realm. And I didn't particularly understand maybe that the things that are naturally part of my sensitivity or my sensibilities were most, well, not only most conversant with, but most suited to bring in aesthetic way, if you understand what I mean. And that in that way, I think he was subtly, as he was with many students, just by the virtue of the way he conducted himself in the world. It's also true of Toshiko, who, I mean, I was very fortunate in that small art building at Princeton. Um, it was a real, for me, place that I came into contact with people who, it was a real consistency between the lives that they led and the art that they made. It wasn't calculated. It wasn't, in many instances, caring for what was popular at the time it was rather attending to the trajectory of their own feelings, their own process. One, you know, one project building on its way by what was happening in the art world. I found that, I find that now I find that important than I realized at the time, because I feel as though the pressure is so great. Reimagine yourself, represent yourself again and again in such a short time. The trajectory of one's work takes time. You know, when you think when you think about, you know, you work with Carlton Watkins or so you and make a body of work, synthesize what you see, articulate, make a book in an exhibit. In no time, you know, reimagine yourself again and, and present yourself again. There needs to be that kind of phase of contemplating, looking, being open to things that you didn't expect. And I think, I, I, I hope I, I learned that actually during the course of my studies with Emmett and Toshiko. Is that kind of a way of saying that once you were among migrants and in refugee camps, that portraiture, often strikingly intimate portraiture, for lack of a better phrase, came naturally to you? I think I felt... Um, most at ease, particularly in the refugee communities. I wasn't comfortable sort of moving in, moving through without their willingness to collaborate. Um, and I think on a more, it's tricky to describe at effect level, I think that I was perhaps drawn to the profundity of what some of these people had to own lives. And I definitely was a kind of keenly aware of the way in which my heritage, Kenya, and those surrounding nations had been rendered to us in the press, in the New York Times, for instance. I would to those kinds of images of refugees, even though I latterly understood, you know, that they were able to go for various NGOs and relief efforts, something that probably my work, you know, has never been 
something on a human level that I bristled uh, against or didn't, I felt very uncomfortable with that as a notion of somehow I am in search, I presume, of a kind of openness or harmony. And if you were going to you know, make a general statement about a place, it had to be through the specific nature of individual images, individuals, an overriding, overarching sense of what those communities meant. And I think that certainly more so in the photographing and documenting, it's become customary to the way in which a piece is orchestrated from afar and then to send somebody just to simply make images. And I think that you know, when you vi when one visits places like that, for me, the first, you mentioned the first refugee camp, those were areas I knew from my childhood before the time when, you know, tens of thousands of refugees had flocked into the region. It had to be about a kind of slow process of listening and certainly of collaboration because what the stories of what they had endured in, in across the border in their homes and the sort of flight to those refugee communities. And there's, you know, there's nothing less interesting for me than going to a place and making images that are one's preconceptions. The process of making has to be about going and listening and thinking and firstly, perhaps challenging one's own preconceptions or the way in which places have been rendered to us. And very important to me, as I mentioned, in the African refugee communities, because it was unsettling for me to imagine, you know, always these victims of a cruel and fierce world, never with the sense that they might be there to bolster communities that, though they had endured a great hardship, were nonetheless communities and might be able to reconstitute something that has happened. In fact, you know, the Sudanese border, those camps are still open, you know, all the years. The Sudanese have been living and giving birth and growing up and marrying in those camps. On the side, I mean, what is particularly heinous is this notion that the Kenyan government has of late repatriate all of these refugees who've lived there since the early 90s. And quite admirably, the obeyed them, said it was counter to international human rights. So the same kinds of xenophobic notions that we have are sort of rearing their ugly head in Kenya as well. I wanted to ask about a particular kind of picture that I think you first made in the early 90s. So these are uh, triptyches, kind of panoramas, if you will, of unaccompanied minors preparing to go from, and here my pronunciation is going to be disastrous, I'm afraid. <laughs> Lokishogyo, Kenya? That's close. Yeah. Close? <laughs> Lokishogyo. So to go from Lokishogyo to a Sudanese refugee camp at Kakuma, these were boys being moved from one camp to another to keep them from being kidnapped from, from the original camp, after which they were often forced to fight in what was even then uh, the long-running Second Sudanese Civil War. And you started making these panoramas of groups of people. And, and there's a long panorama tradition in American art, certainly, especially among photographers. And usually in that American tradition, the panorama is about landscape and it's not about portraiture. Why was that format interesting to you? And was it 
and was there something different you thought about doing with it by making it about people rather than the land? Well, as a subtext, I should say, just to describe Oops, indeed, that is being moved further within the borders of, of Kenya. It was from initially the first Sudan, close to the Sudanese border. And as you suggested at night, the SPLA was coming and abducting the older boys to take them back across in the south. And so the UN realized that, the, that this proximity to the border was endangering. The, my first moments in those camps, I mean, I was full of sort of trepidation because thousands of unaccompanied minors was pretty harrowing. You know, they had been away from their villages, shepherds herding the, the flocks, and they'd come back uh, only to find that their parents and loved ones had been killed or abducted. So the village, and they had banded together, walked many, many miles across uh, the desert eventually to reach Wari in Kenya. And what was pretty exceptional for me when I, you know, started to understand that, that these boys, you know, they were anywhere from eight to 18 years old, but the older boys would care for the younger boys. They really of family in those camps. And there was a kind of real solidarity. And I was interested, you know, if you talk about the sort of formal aspect of those triptychs or of the port interested in a very proper, direct, transparent relationship between photographer and, by extension, the viewer having the chance to engage directly with, with the subject. The more reduced portraits were to the camera. And, you know, if you think about the old banquet cameras being used in your degree of uh, formal presentation, acknowledgement of the camera, and various aspects that are interesting. You know, there are these overlaps at the seams of those images where you will see a figure more than once. Central figure that is, in many instances, presenting something to me, to the camera. And then before the camera are sort of accorded this degree of respect or let's say deference and that i you know i think that let's say that aspect maybe relate if one might look respectfully at the landscape or quietly allowing that which one sees to confront the photographer um, for them to gather themselves together and present themselves to me as they feel most comfortable an essential part of of those those little those pieces and so panorama worked as a format because you wanted to show just how many people in, into... Yes, certainly, you know, this kind of the magnitude of of the problem, but consistent with the way in which I work, I didn't want to stand above, stand in my own solidarity. I mean, I feel in, in many ways as though I wish that I was one of the people standing in that group. You know, I feel like the camera, the viewer, as a, in a kind of, it's not a confrontation, but it's a, it's an insistent gaze, which back to the way in which I'd seen refugee communities rendered in the New York Times or so. I, in those days, in the early 90s, they weren't often potentially empowered or having a degree of dignity. Maybe we lose sight of that now and all the years that we have looked at refugees. But 
I was still interested in it because it was somehow reconciling something within me as well. You know, born in New York with roots, I can't reconcile these different strains within me. Then how could I feel calm? How could I feel at ease? In the mid-90s, 1996, you made another big trip, this one to, or these ones, I'm not sure, to Nepal, Bhutan, and Pakistan. And when you visited the Pakistan-Afghanistan borderland, you found that the area had been settled by at least a million refugees. This was land to which you had a connection. It was your, your grandfather's birthplace, although he later moved to Nairobi. Did you go to that Pakistan-Afghanistan area expecting to extend your practice into more camps, or was that a surprise? Uh, it was It was a surprise. That piece, the Victor Weeps, about Afghanistan and Afghan refugee communities was, in a way, a follow-up in East Africa. East Africa was about looking at the land where my father was born and raised, learning about the notion of those refugee communities. And then when I'd done that, I thought, oh, I'd be curious to look one generation to the land from which my grandfather, as you suggested, had emigrated, had, had migrated to, to East Africa. Part of that trajectory would become Pakistan, traveling to Eastern, Southern, Southern Africa. He died long before I was born. And I, growing up in, and being in Kenya, had always, from my uncles, and of course, my grandfather had very many children, about his great to to islam and i realized in the intervening years that much of the legacy that he had left had already or shorn away by by corruption in kenya and i somehow was looking for what there and forward i wanted to go to the land where he was born and raised and to somehow might resonate with me might be close to my own sensibilities and when of course i northern Pakistan and found all of those uh, refugee communities from Afghanistan. The, the book itself became a weaving which were about my search for the legacy left me by my grandfather and his own sense of religiosity was not raised with my, my, my father was as a child raised with Islam but had turned away from it. My mom so turned away from it and I was not raised with religion but I had a respect for what it had done for him, because it had created a philanthropic strain, a strain of generosity in him that he carried to the end of his life. And so the refugees there, I mean, I started to listen to their stories about the time that they had been either Mujahideen or, or living in these camps, let's call them villages uh, of exile, because they'd been there so long. It was a, also a kind of a tricky period. I, I spent the better part, part of two years there and across the border in Afghanistan, the rise of the Taliban as well. And the curious thing was, you know, that the way in which these, they functioned, you know, you'd arrive in the village uh, and they would put you in a home that was intended for visitors and then which is sort of the council of, of elders. And they would, if they were willing, they would accept us uh, staying each day, each evening, come and speak to us about the nature of their communities or the nature of what the warring had been across the border. And because of my name, Fadilahi Sheikh, and I was in a way welcomed <laughs> as a brother by they 
were confounded about what had happened with America. You know, when they were fighting the Soviets, the Americans were there proposing to be their brothers. And the moment that the Soviets were ousted from Albania, were abandoned to their own devices by America. And so this was something that I daily basis, you know, I was asked in some way to be an apologist for America. Why had these people been our brothers and summarily discarded us when they got what they wanted? And I, I kind of mention that because it's always, particularly since September 11th, because I realized, of course, I'm, I'm skipping forward quite a bit, years that I'd spent in those camps, even if we needed to have a retributive act after, um, it was going to impact the refugees that had you know, given me such hospitality of my years of working there. Even if we needed that act of retaliation, we might also use it as we invest ourselves in other nations and you know how that should be conducted in the future should we make these kinds of incursions and then leave or, or are we obliged then to have a longer view of what our engagement in the world means have certain things happen uh, on our behalf in our behalf so that you know Afghanistan has become very complicated for me because I thought about, you know, returning eleven, but then I realized that what I had made during the years that I was there and the testimonies that I had, if I were to go back, I would be looking at another cycle of the same sort of violence that I had listened to in the 90s. So in a way, those first two projects were very much about trying to reconcile uh, the impulses that that live within me. Trying to understand you, I would have to say that many of my sensibilities or my ways are somehow born of the East, but probably still don't fully understand. It's amazing to me in in in, in retrospect that um, that you just kept traveling in these years. <laughs> it, it, in 1992, you had visited some Somali camps and you went back in 2000. So this is really almost... Um, kind of a decade of of just almost nonstop travel in some ways. By your second visit to to Somalia and and the Somali camps, I think you could say that there was almost an epidemic of rape going on within the camps there. How did you think through how you wanted to address that crisis within portraits? It's an extremely uh, most difficult phases of my, um, let's say, working life in the sense that the that ladder for the sun is drawn actually from a letter given me by the women's leader of, of the camp in Dagahale, a woman named Abshiro Admo, so extraordinarily powerful as an individual. She'd come to me one morning on her own with her with her son who had, that she had dictated to him and it talked about the difficulties women and children face, not only in the Somali more specifically in the refugee camps. And that that book, that exhibition is, I was returning to the camps after eight years. And since, you know, 80% of those camps were women and children, it seemed to me important to make something about them. 
because the most powerful aspect were clearly the, the men. They were often very present and very dismissive of the women's perspective. But I stood in this notion of what their lives were like. And specifically in the early going was people, young, young adults now who had been in the feeding centers when I had photographed them in the early 90s, that a child may be in the feeding center, but that they're not necessarily on their way toward death, but the majority actually survive and then raised in the camps. But I, the reason that I said you, that you asked me a difficult question is that there's one aspect of that book and of certainly life in the camps still to this day is the extreme vulnerability of women Again, not only in Somali society during the time of the war, but also put in place to protect them. Now, the women had often uh, were the ones with the responsibility perimeter to gather firewood, and it was here that they were at the greatest uh, risk of rape. But my actual understanding that I had to make something about that because of the magnitude of what was happening, comfortable with the idea of reducing somebody to that one moment of trauma in their lives. I didn't want to make an image that dims solely, but I wanted it to be truthful to what they were experiencing. And so I I very quickly realized to me would be, you know, to have a very formal portrait and also the testimony or voice, right? And you're talking about women who, when they are open about the fact of having been assaulted and raped, ostracized by the community. And so at the time I, I traveled with a Somali woman, the government was denying what actually had been happening repeatedly, which was people dozens or hundreds of miles actually through the desert, finally arriving at the border where they believed they would only to be raped by the Kenyan border guards who had been sent there to protect them. And so the Kenyan government refused that this, and I, I traveled with a Somali woman, Fozimus, who was working on women's issues. And we took the testimonies of these women who indeed um, had been assaulted on the border and others who had either of the camps or, or even in, in Somalia. And the positive aspect of that was that, you know, testimonies, perhaps the images, but they did in fact force the Kenyan government to acknowledge after to create safe havens, safe areas for these women to live in the camps under greater protection. You know, I'm always very uncomfortable with the idea of trying to quantify the impact of what you're doing, but I was pleased to be somehow part of that. And the difficult aspect is it offers you their testimony. And you ask them, I can ask, you know, is that okay to be in a book? Is it okay to be an exhibition? They say, yes, of course. You know, with this, we've, we don't want only to be defined by that. We want to change the system for our, our sister. You have to ask yourself, do these people understand what they're agreeing to? Do they know what it is, for instance, to have in the world? If one is from you know, a remote desert area of southern Somalia, do they completely and what you're asking them? And there, then you have to somehow interrogate for yourself the nature you're doing. What, what is 
how are you handling the trust that somebody gives you? For me, that's a big part of the process of, of literature of, you know, engaging profound poignant issues like that is that there's always also this to try and do right by the person's trust in you, but you're never completely content or satisfied with that. I have to admit, you know, if I could jump in about that subject, you know, in, in a huge number of your books, and there must be about 20 books that you've either published or that museums or Steidel have produced of, of your work, there are texts either written by you or by the subjects of your pictures. You mentioned an example a moment ago. That's a practice that for me recalls certainly, for example, the way Dorothea Lange and her collaborator and later husband, Paul Taylor, Taylor. Taylor. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. worked during the, the early 20th century in the American West. How did How did you come to... I don't know if feel comfortable is the right phrase or feel the imperative of mixing a subject's words with the subject's picture. I, I think very early on, I very well, very effectively that they, you know, they ask the viewer, invite the viewer to want to know more, unable to touch, particularly when you're looking at very complex issues, as, as I seem often to be drawn to. And as in what I was just discussing about those women who were assaulted, I felt as though their voice, unfiltered, direct, and unfiltered and direct to the camera was the mode mode in which I felt most comfortable. Issues needed to be discussed, needed to be represented, whatever, for archival purposes, for and each each instance in, in various projects, there's there's like there's a great trepidation. Are you handling the trust that somebody gives you properly? Uh, is it essential for a degree of social activism formation of the system for them to to include those voices. And in most cases when I've opted to to include voices like that was uh, either what the person wanted or essential to what I was seeing, what I was documenting. And I mean you you mentioned Dorothy Lang and Paul Taylor. I mean that that for me that's a lot that kind of mode of working is one I understand, you know, Walker Evans and James Agee, the need in the best instance, or, or let us say an independent text and, a, and a, a strong independent photograph to come transcend either of the separate elements. That, that for me is, a, is important. There can be a resonance far too often. One, you know, is illustrating the other. The image is just, you know, attended by the text, you know, and that's why for me, the books are important. Exhibitions are more immersive in the sense of, yeah, I like the, and I need the dreams. I need the context. I need the voice of of the way in which one approaches and apprehends the work. Your books, which I, I mentioned a moment ago, many of them are, are online on, on your website and will include links to them. People can, can view them on, online. There had been some landscapes sprinkled into your African work throughout the end of the 20th century. And, but as we get into the 21st century and as you go to India and most recently to Israel and the West Bank, landscapes assume more and more importance within each project. Did you consciously think about transitioning away from portraiture and into a greater focus on landscape or was it more organic than that? 
it, I think it was by it was by necessity. I mean, I try to approach each situation or each openly, open-heartedly, and and in a way with a blank slate about how I might eyes perhaps that portraiture, as I as I mentioned earlier, somehow feels natural to me. But in some instances, I also realize that actually looking at the land and imagining there's a kind of connection between the landscape of the face and what one holds or harbors within and what one sees, what landscape gives you certain clues to unravel if you if you're determined what what it holds within. Uh, and so when I was working, well, there are different projects. I mean, if I if I think about Ether, which was the first project in India, that was very much about thinking about the notion of and it was more intended as something experiential for the viewer. It was also connected my own proximity to people in my own family who had passed away and in several instances with whom I had cared for them up to the moments of their dying. And I understood this kind of consistency between life and death is very natural, partly in the third world. We didn't, you know, we didn't, want to forestall that or we didn't want to remove so I'm, I'm, I'm digressing here but I mean in a way the immersive quality of that book or of being in the envelope of night moving through those alleyways was about creating something that was more perhaps cinematic meditative and thinking about how the landscape how the water how the alleyways motion and so you cre you try to create a kind of building of a vocabulary as you go through that book, which kind of builds onto the next with the sleeping figures next to the water or the fire. That was a kind of very, let's say, for one of a better word, a poetic kind of contemplative book. Now, the need for landscape for me was really working in Israel, Palestine, because that was complicated in the sense that it was an invitation which always very wonderful to have but then quite intimidated by as artists all of them with long-standing careers and we were asked to spend six or eight months in in israel and we were given freedom to to work on whatever you know struck our fancy now i have no connection to that region to that part of the world, save, save to, to Lebanon. Um, but I was very interested in going and realized that probably I would kind of, that kind of entree to, to Israel and that community. At the same time, one doesn't wish to, and until you're sure that you're able to do something, until you're able to honor that generosity of an invitation and to create something worthy of your own process, worthy of the other, let, let us say, fit in with the and work. And so I went two or three trips without formally accepting the contract. I said, yes, but I want to, to look quietly and, you know, fund myself until I'm sure I have something. And it seemed to, after those two or three times that I needed to start with 48, the start of the state of Israel, if I wanted to think of my own process, primer. And I Quickly, you know, I was discussing with people who have been combatants on both sides of the divide, this odd ability of someone like me to move 
with fluidity across the border between Israel and the West Bank, the Palestinian communities. One of the people I was speaking to, an Israeli former commander, he said, he told me about along the Jerusalem corridor and offered to go to that area with me. And it happened to be a village that was evacuated. And I realized then was the sort of starting point for me of the work was to go to these villages um, that would become villages of exile and to try and find the remains of what, and to, to marry that with the simple unemotional facts of workplaces. For me, it was a very basic insistence on facts of history, but only latterly did I realize upon a, a subject that was really taboo in the region, but yet which I still defend. I mean, I think if we want to move forward away between communities, we have to accept facts of history on all sides. And so therein was the sort of more extensively again with landscape, and landscape has always been a part of my practice, but in this case, it was very much about being subsumed within the land, what trying to imagine the history unfolding in that place, and, you know, a nature preserve, a forest, a reimagined uh, village, or the villages had been raised to the ground and the, and the rubble physically removed, so there was no trace. And then in some ways, that notion of 48 then made me think when I went to the South by invitation of a Bedouin community, I went to visit the, the village of Al-Arakib uh, one summer afternoon and the village had been uh, raised to the ground and all of the refuse removed. And I was sitting in a protest tent uh, who was the leader of the community. And we were looking out across what had been the area of of the village that remained were the troughs of Jewish National Fund plantings of what would be forest in the years to come. And as he was telling me about this this land, I realized very quickly I couldn't I couldn't he was talking about I needed to see that space within a broader context of the South. How did this bloom transform the Negev, transform south of the country. And those images, those color photographs of Al-Arakib, of the Ambassador Forest and beyond, teach me about how to read the land, about um, what are the clues that when one looks, if you don't attend too carefully, you might overlook what they mean. And that's a kind of, then I started investigation into the way in which the desert had been transformed by by industry by afforestation in in more recent times and as a means by which the the bedouin presence in the landscape to force them in essence away from what had been traditionally that's that's great that's a body of work i like a lot i think i think a lot about the concept of of landscape and how it holds history and memory within it. So um, I appreciate that. Fazal Sheikh, thanks so much for speaking with me. Oh, thank you for having me, Tony. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.